Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today, as uh, most weeks, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, Simon, there was a bit of a, a worry in the market last week, some worries about what was happening in China and also ongoing concerns about interest rates, what the Fed's going to do. But actually, how has it turned out this week? Well, it's probably fair to say it's been a little bit on the skittish side. So just to put some numbers around that, the investment company sector probably ended the week about flat. And that's in contrast to the wider UK market, which actually ended up in positive territory, probably up about 1% or so. In terms of the sector average discount for investment companies, it certainly narrowed in the first four days of the week. It was uh, 2% at the close of Thursday. I suspect it would have widened out as we saw uh, a bit of a sell-off on Friday. But you're, you're absolutely right. Those preoccupations of the market haven't really gone away. There is clearly a lot of focus, as we've discussed before, about inflation. A company called Evergrande, a Chinese property developer, has been capturing the headlines and the possibility of a debt default there, though certainly the fears seem to have rescinded as the week has gone on, uh, and also a lot of discussion about what the Federal Reserve may do, particularly in terms of uh, interest rate rises in 2022. So as always, a lot for the market to digest. And in the UK, of course, we've had all these headlines about rising gas prices or rising energy prices and the possible impact on people's gas bills coming into the winter. Or something else to get our head around. But we're not going to waste much time on that. We're going to move on and we're going to talk about the corporate action in the investment trust sector. Uh, and we're going to kick off with a update on what's happening with the Acorn Income Fund, ticker AIF. That's right. So this is one that we've talked about a few episodes ago. Basically, at one stage, this investment trust company was going to appoint BMO Global Asset Management and adopt a sustainable global equity income policy. Shareholders weren't too impressed with that idea. Uh, and now the intention is effectively to wind down the fund and offer a rollover of assets into Unicorn UK Income Fund, which is an open-ended fund, or as an alternative offer shareholders cash. So this week, we learned that the shareholder permission for these various moves will be through AGMs and an EGM, which are expected to be held on the 12th of October. And then assuming that shareholder permission is forthcoming, that all should be completed on or around the 15th of November. And what's happening to the share price? Is that telling us anything about how many people might go for these different options? Yeah, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that there is a cash exit on the table or even a rollover into an open-ended fund, the discount has narrowed in. So at the moment, I've got it at about a 6% discount. It's averaged about 14% over the previous 12 months. So that discount does seem to be marching in. Okay, well, we'll have to wait to see the outcome of that one. But it's slightly unusual for boards to uh, make a recommendation and then change their mind. Let's move on, though, and talk about Civitas Social Housing. We rather gave that a bit of a going over last week, has to be said. We had quite a lot of time about that because it was an interesting story. But there's obviously been a bit further developments this week. Can you uh, bring us up to date on what's happening there? Yeah, and I think, again, actually, it's probably the the big story in the sector uh, for the second week running. And and one suspects it's possibly got some mileage left in it yet. So this week, Shadowfall, who are the short seller that got mentioned in that Sunday Times article, Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they actually published their open letter uh, essentially to the board of Civitas Social Housing, but setting out, as they put it, their doubts they had about the investment company's business model. Now, it's, uh, it's available on Shadowfall's website. It's quite a long letter, about 22 pages in all. And they make it clear at the start that they actually, certainly at the time the letter was written, they have a short position of 0.8%. So therefore, they are motivated for the share price to fall, let's put it that way. But certainly the doubts that they outlined, as the media article pointed out, that certainly the the transparency of disclosures by Civitas Social Housing, read some of the transactions with entities where directors of Civitas Investment Management have an economic interest. That's something then uh, uncomfortable with. They also disputed um, the claim that uh, effectively the income here is 100% government funded. They questioned that. And there was also quite a lot about, as they put it, the, the viability and the quality of Civitas is rental income. And they actually put some numbers to that and suggested that up to 23% of that income was, as they put it, at risk. And that would uh, have an impact on 
the NAV of this investment company. And they also said they came up with a number of 48%, a 48% risk to the dividend. So quite serious claims made in the letter. Now, in response to that, Civitas Social Housing issued a statement, and I'm just going to draw a little bit of the quote out here of what they said. It is the board's belief that the letter is based on factual inaccuracies, incorrect assumptions, erroneous comments and assertions which are not grounded in fact. The board of Civitas strongly reiterates that it has a great confidence in the company's assets, revenues, business model and strategy. And the company continues to perform robustly and in line with expectations. They also said that they would bring out a full response to Shutterfall's letter and that will be published after a detailed review. What we did see on the back of that letter from Shutterfall and even thereafter, after the board made their statement, is that um, the share price, perhaps unsurprisingly, has been quite volatile and in fact tested 89p in intraday trading, uh, although the investment company has actually made a few buybacks as well at a higher level than that. So this one, I think, is going to rumble on and obviously all eyes will be on that full response from the board of Civitas Social Housing, which one suspects will be quite important in determining its uh, short-term future. So you might just uh, remind us, I mean, last week we sort of raised an eyebrow, at least that the board hadn't come out uh, more quickly to say that the Sunday Times story was wrong. But now they will have a chance to uh, put their whole case into the public domain and to shareholders. But as you said, the, the share price has been pretty weak. I mean, just remind us how far it's now fallen from before this... Uh, Sunday Times article appeared? Well, if you go back to the start of August, which is as high, off the top of my head, I'm going to say it was 120 spot 6p. Um, it then took a hit in August on the back of uh, the regulator coming out and, and naming Auckland, which is uh, one of their largest counterparties, as not conforming to best practice and kind of framing some issues with regard to Auckland. So the, the share price had already come off. So it'd probably be around about a pound or so when the media article, the Sunday Times article appeared, um, which drew heavily on some of the concerns that Shadowfall have. So from a pound down to 99, I think I've mentioned 89p this week in intraday trading. So it has popped all over the place and it ended the week on a share price of 92.5p. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Can you say the, uh, the price at which they've been buying back the shares? Do we know that? Just to put that uh, 92p price in context? Sure. So as I mentioned, they've done several buybacks that they've disclosed so far, at least. On the 22nd of September, they bought back at 95.45p. And then the next day, the 23rd of September, they bought back 400,000 shares at 91.54p. So obviously a slightly lower price, but the point is that they have been active. Yes. Well, we gave all the time this last week. Obviously, this one is going to have legs, I have to say. Uh, it looks like that. And obviously, as you say, the onus is on the board now to come out and reassure the market that... Uh, in fact, all these allegations are, as the board says, erroneous and not grounded in fact. OK, so we'll move on and we'll talk about um, another interesting situation, which is one involving Genesis Emerging Markets, uh, ticker GSS. I'm sure listeners will recall that this is a long-running Emerging Markets Investment Trust where the board has decided to change the manager. But it's not quite over yet. They were proposing to appoint Fidelity. Uh, to take over this very large emerging markets investment trust. But it's not quite over yet, uh, Simon, is it? Well, you could well be right. It's certainly an interesting development. So just to be clear on what's happened this week, Genesis Investment Management, which is the incumbent uh, investment manager and obviously therefore the outgoing investment manager, issued a statement that noted that its proposals for the future of Genesis Emerging Markets had included a full exit at close to NAV, which it understood or understands is supported by a number of shareholders. Now, as you mentioned, the board is proposing a vote on the change of manager to Fidelity, and that involves the adoption of a new investment policy and indeed a tender offer of up to 25% of the share capital at a 2% discount to NAV. Now, that's all dependent on shareholder permission being forthcoming. Uh, and there's an EGM on the 1st of October to see if that is the case. So one wonders why Genesis Investment Management has made this statement. It's certainly unusual when we see an investment trust move manager for the outgoing manager to make any statement, frankly, or if they do, it's to wish the shareholders all the best of British and all that kind of stuff. So this kind of begs a few questions. I mean, one interpretation would be that this 
might be an example of sour grapes, to be honest, but that would in itself seem quite unusual. Or perhaps maybe there is a chance that the vote on the 1st October might not go in the board's favour. In fact, Genesis Investment Management is suggesting that um, there are shareholders minded to go along the full exit route. It's a little bit of an odd one, to be honest, but we will find out next week exactly which way this is going to play out. Yes, I can't remember anything quite like this before. As you say, what's happened to the share price of uh, Genesis Emerging Markets? How is that reacting to this state of affairs? Well, certainly the discount has narrowed in. I mean, to be honest, you would expect it to narrow in given that there is a quite significant tender offer on the table, a return of capital, as I mentioned, at a 2% discount to NAV. So it's been trading around about a 4 5% discount to its NAV, and that compares with an average of 8% over the previous 12 months. So the discount has tightened in, but not entirely obvious that the discount doesn't exactly tell us which way the vote's going to go next week. Very intriguing. Okay, let's move on to the subject of fundraising. There's been a lot of fundraising this year, as we know, and it's still going on. Let's kick off by talking about Gore Street Energy Storage. GSF is the ticker, which does what it says in the tin. It's into energy storage, which is uh, quite a good place to be, you'd think, in the current excitement about energy prices and shortage of gas. What's been happening there? Yeah, well, they came out and said this week that, in fact, they're now largely committed and they were minded to issue new shares. So they're looking to issue up to 67.9 million new shares at a price of 107p. That represents a 6% premium to their NAV as at the end of June. So they'll raise about 73 million, assuming that support is forthcoming. Uh, They've basically got a pipeline lined up essentially in North America and Western Europe. And this follows relatively hard on the heels of their last fundraising effort uh, back in April. They raised 135 million at that stage at a price of 102p. We're going to find out again quite soon how this one goes. It's due to close on the 29th of September with the results announced the following day and those new shares should they be successful will begin trading on the 4th of October but what they have already announced is that there was a primary bid offer as part of this placing and that's closed early basically as a result of over subscription it was limited to be honest to about uh, 1.2 million euros uh, but that's already closed so for retail investors looking to get involved that's not a route that they can go down now. But if they were to uh, buy some shares in the market, what would be the price they'd see there against this uh, proposed placing price of 107B? Well, I've got the closing price for the end of Thursday. And at that stage, it was 109 spot 5P, uh, which represented about a 9.5% premium. Okay, so let's move on and mention BH Macro. That ticker is BHMG or BHMU. This is a hedge fund that uh, tends to do well when the market is falling rather than when the market is rising. That's one of the reasons investors like it. Uh, What have they had to say? Yeah, well, this was an interesting development, actually. We talked an awful lot about BH Macro this year, and it had a merger with its sister fund. There was also a return of capital as well. And yet here it is now issuing new shares. So this week they announced that they would be minded to place shares at a price of £35.30, and which represented a 4% premium to the NAV as at the end of 17th of September. And in fact, they raised £24 million worth. So it was about 2.9 million stunning shares were issued as a result. So not the largest fundraising of the week, but just shows that after quite a lot of corporate activity that did involve some contraction, there was a return of capital, it's now in a position where it can actually start issuing shares again. And on those shares, they'll get the new higher fee, I think, will they not, that they managed to negotiate uh, in the process of all this? That's right. And I think, as you well remember, that's how this whole saga started off with Brevin Howard, uh, the investment manager, looking to increase its fee levels. So good business for them. Let's move on and talk about Home REIT. Ticker is H-O-M-E, not surprisingly. They also raised some money. Perhaps you just remind us what they do and how well they got on. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, Home REIT. It's only came to the market in October last year. That's the time of its IPO. It raised $241 million at that stage. And essentially, it provides dedicated accommodation uh, for the homeless. So obviously, a very specialised uh, property play. Um, they were looking to raise additional capital. And uh, it's been a success, really. They've raised £335 million. 
that was raised in a significantly oversubscribed issue. I think originally they were trying to get 262 million, so increased the amount available. But even then, a scaling back exercise was required. So the new shares will be issued at a price of 109p, and they begin trading on the 27th of September, so in other words, Monday. But as always with these large fundraisings, it's a question of you know, how quickly they can get that capital to work. And certainly the proceeds, uh, there's a £400 million pipeline uh, set up. So they're obviously quite confident they can get that money to work. Yes, well, that's very impressive to raise that much money for, the, for that cause and that business. They're very impressive in such a short period of time. Let's move on and talk about Tritax Eurobox, E-B-O-X. They also have raised some more money. That's right, another property play, uh, another specialised property play. Basically, they were looking to raise um, about 170 million sterling pounds, 200 million euros. They increased that to 250 million, basically taking into account the strength of their near-term investment pipeline. Uh, and that's kind of how it played out. So they've issued 191 million shares. That's at a price at 111 spot five. P. So um, this follows, again, relatively hard on the heels of their last fundraising effort. That was in March this year when they raised £198 million at 103p. Right. So it goes on. This uh, fundraising run goes on very nicely, particularly if you're in the right sectors or only perhaps if you're in the right sectors. That's all the fundraising this week. Let's move on and talk about some interim results. And we're going to kick off with Martin Curry, Global Portfolio Investment Trust, ticker MNP. Can you tell us uh, about their interim results and uh, remind us exactly what they do? Yep. So they had interim results out for the six months to the end of July. Um, In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 16.1%. And that compared with a rise of 12.2% for their benchmark, which is the FTSE World Index. The share price, not quite as good as the NAV. The share price total return was up about 12.9%. But to answer your question, uh, and perhaps as the name would suggest, they invest in global equities. A chap called Zerid Osmani has been responsible for this one for a few years, and he has a growth approach, though the portfolio is differentiated from some of the other more growth-orientated managers. It's less reliant on some of the kind of growth staple, the kind of large tech names. And certainly in this period, it was stock selection that saw the fund outperform. And as I think the report noted, at a time when actually value was doing quite well. So uh, those stocks that did well for him were Kingspan, Hexagon, NVIDIA, although the detractors included Tencent and CyberArk. But they have a, a zero discount policy and uh, they did repurchase a few shares in the period, 1.4 million, but they also reissued 2 million shares. Um, and the board have said they absolutely stick to that policy. But the managers are optimistic, very optimistic, actually, uh, in terms of the outlook for equities, uh, noting the rapid economic recovery and the supportive backdrop. Okay, let's move on and mention New Star Investment Trust, ticker NSI. This is not one we talk about very often. It's uh, quite a specialist, unusual vehicle in which John Duffield, the founder of Jupiter, has a big shareholding. How have they been performing? Well, they announced annual results for the year to the 30th of June, uh, in which time their NAV total return was up 22.2% to be precise. Now that compared with a rise of 17.5% and 25.1% for the MSCI UK index and the MSCI All Country World index, respectively. So cash represented about 6% of net assets at the end of June, and they made it clear that the investment trust is likely to maintain a significant cash position. So you're absolutely spot on. John Duffield, I think, owns about 59% of this particular investment trust, and certainly the people involved in it. So it's Brompton Asset Management, but there's a lot of the ex and Newstar team, I think, are involved. The net assets stood about $138 million at the end of June. And there's a number of collectives and, in fact, investment trusts in the portfolio. But probably the best performer for Newstar Investment Trust in this period uh, was a holding they had in a company called Embark, which was a private company, or is a private company, I should say, that's been acquired by Lloyd's Banking Group. So it's a platform business. And that resulted in an uplift just short of £8 million for this investment trust. And this uh, trust sits in the flexible investment sector, along with some other well-known names, but it's always traded on quite a big discount, has it not? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, it's, I've got it on about a 28% discount at the moment, and that's broadly in line with the average over the previous 12 months. And uh, 
Uh, yes, I mean, its market cap is about £100 million or so, but the free float, i.e. Uh, the amount of shares in, in public hands, will be significantly less than that. As I mentioned, John Duffield has a large stake, as do a number of other people as well. So it's probably off the radar of many people. Yes, and I'm very happy to say that uh, Mr Duffield is uh, alive and well. He's a little bit older than I am, but uh, I wish him many more years of happy life. Uh, I'm not sure you'd say ever describe him as being retired, but... Uh, He's a very interesting character. Let's move on and talk about uh, the City of London Investment Trust, ticker CTY. What have they had to say? Well, they announced annual results for the year to the 30th of June, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 20%. And that compared with a rise of 21.5% for their benchmark, the FTSE All Share. The share price total return was actually 21.3%, so just marginally underperforming that index as their rating moved to a small premium. But the story here is about the dividend. And uh, not only are they an AIC dividend hero, but they're actually top of the pile. They have increased their dividend for 55 consecutive years. Um, It was up half a percent in this particular year to 19.1p. That was actually uncovered by revenue per share. It was about 90% covered. But they did see their revenue per share increased by just short of 9% in that year. So they used a little bit of revenue reserves to make it good. Joe Curtis has been the manager of this investment trust for 30 years now. So a very long-standing manager. And certainly he has a preference for large defensive companies, as they pointed out in the report, probably less scope for recovery as their market bounced back in that November 2020 kind of vaccine bounce period. But they've also announced that David Smith who's the manager of Henderson High Income, is also involved with bankers on the UK equity side. He's been appointed deputy fund manager at City of London Investment Trust, and uh, he's worked with Job for a number of years. So that seems a good fit. So I'm just trying to think this is the, the period to the 30th of June. I mean, presumably they had to draw on their revenue reserves last year as well. So that's been a couple of years in succession, but uh, they're not going to lose their dividend hero status anytime soon. I'm sure about that. They've accumulated quite a lot of reserves over these years, and it's a very impressive track record in that respect. Let's move on and talk about Murray Income. MUT is the ticker. This is a trust which last year was involved in one of the big mergers in the UK equity income space, and they produced some annual results. They have indeed, and it's exactly the same period. So annual results for the year ended 30th of June. Their NAV total return was up 20.6%, and the FTSE All Share, as already mentioned, was about 21.5% in that period. The share price return is not quite as good, actually. It was up 18.5% as their discount widened out to 7%, though the earnings per share was up quite nicely by about 10.5% to 33.7p, while their dividend per share was increased by 0.7% to 34.5%. So although it was uncovered, it was 98% covered. So only a small element had to come from revenue reserves. And similar to City of London, they're an AIC dividend hero. They come in at 48 consecutive years of dividend increases. But there were similar messages in some respects to City of London, as much as that small NAV underperformance was a result of their preference for quality growth companies, uh, although gearing was a positive for them in the period. I think they had they stood about 10% geared at the end of June. But Charles Luke has been responsible for this one since uh, 2006 now, actually, so quite a few years, and supported by Ian Pyle of that Aberdeen equities team. Yes, by chance, I had a conversation with uh, Charles Luke last week, as it happens. He made the point that his trust typically, uh, I mean, it is very much focused on quality shares, and uh, it does tend to slightly lag the market when it's rising, uh, but uh, more than makes up for that by its defensive qualities when the market goes down. So I don't think they think this would be too bad a set of results at all in that context, given how strong the market's been in recent months. Let's move on overseas and talk about Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, ticker BGS, which is Bailey Gifford's Japanese Smaller Companies Trust, and they've just produced some interims. They have indeed interim results to the end of July. It's probably fair to say it was a quieter period, really. The NAV total return was down about 1% or so. That compared with a rise of 2% for the MSCI Japan Small Cap Index. The share price came off a little bit as well, probably down about 4%. So perhaps unsurprisingly, given the Bailey Gifford name, the manager, Praveen Kumar, has a strong growth 
preference. And certainly some of the detractors in the period were some of their long-standing names, particularly internet holdings, actually, though the managers remain absolutely confident in their long-term growth prospects. And I think that's reflected in the fact that the turnover was only 6% in the period. They only actually put one new holding in the portfolio. And the investment manager's report ended with the managers declaring that they remain cautiously optimistic about a return to normality. Yes, and this trust rather like the Bailey Gifford Japan. I mean, it's been a long-running successful performer and normally trades either at par or a little bit of a premium even. But where is it at the moment? Yeah, I've got it on about a 4% premium, and that's in line with the average over the previous 12 months. And again, you're completely correct. Bailey Gifford Japan, uh, which invests in larger and mid-cap companies, so higher up the market cap scale, that's on about a 3% premium again, and that's in line with its 12-month average. Okay, next up is BlackRock Latin American, ticker BRLA, who've also had some interim results to 30th of June. They did indeed, in which time their NAV total return was up 7.4%, and that compared with a rise of 8.9% for the MSCI uh, Emerging Markets Latin American Index. Uh, the share price not quite so good, actually. The share price total return up 3.8%. And they pointed out in the results that the underperformance was a result of stock-specific factors. Brazil is still a large element of the portfolio, probably about 70% or so, although they've been increasing their exposure to Chile, and Mexico, and those two countries represent 10% and 26% respectively. But probably the thing to watch on this one is that they've got one of these conditional tender offers. It's a 25% conditional tender offer, and it's triggered by either uh, performance or discount levels over the four years to the 31st of December 2021, i.e. the end of this year. And certainly at that 30th of June point, it was a little bit touch and go. So this is one that uh, could see a tender offer early next year, um, certainly if performance and discounts perhaps doesn't go in their favour. Yes, well, it's been a tough place to make money in Latin America. How big is the trust now? I mean, would it be uh, threatened, you know, in terms of a secure long-term future if the tender offer turns out to be uh, quite popular? Well, the assets at the moment stand about 172 million. So, you know, if that 25% tender offer is triggered and should it be fully taken up, you'd still result in an investment trust north of 100 million. I think that's the kind of the bare minimum that they'd probably look to sustain. They're saying that their nearest peer is Aberdeen Latin American income, and that's got a market cap of about 30 million at the moment, so substantially smaller. So let's move on and talk about European opportunities, JEO, and the ticker is JEO because this used to be part of the Jupiter stable, but uh, is now a trust managed by an independent fund management company, Devon Equity Management. Still the same manager that used to have before, Alex Darwell. What have their results been like? Well, yeah, probably a tough set of results, to be honest. So this is annual results to the end of May 2021, in which time they generated an NAV total return of just 1.2% compared with 24.6% for their benchmark. Although I think it's fair to say, and we did talk a lot about this at the time, they were impacted quite significantly by a holding they had in a German company called Wirecard, which was subject to a suspected fraud. It saw a significant sell-off. European Opportunities, which was run by Alexander Darwell, did sell out at that point. But as mentioned, it did hit the NAV. They point out in the results, actually, since that financial year end, i.e. 31st of May to the end of August, the NAV total return was up nearly 15% compared with 5% for the benchmark. But during the period in question, uh, as well as Wirecard, performance was also negatively impacted by certainly the portfolio not participating in some of the more buoyant investment themes during the period. And I think it's fair to say that Alexander Darwell has a strong focus on companies with structural growth and low capital needs, and therefore is unlikely to benefit in, into any kind of more cyclical value-orientated rallies. Yes, it's been a difficult time for them. This investment trust has a very good long-term track record, and until that Wirecard affair came up, continues to do very well. But it's now trading on a discount, I think probably wider than it's been for some time, or at least as wide as it's been for some time, perhaps, uh, other than during the pandemic, the initial pandemic sell-off. So uh, how do you see the rating at this point? So it's about a 12% discount or so at the moment. And, you know, over the last 12 months, it's probably averaged about 11%. But you're, you're absolutely right. If you go back further, you don't have to go back too long before you can actually find this investment trust in its Jupiter guys trading on a premium rating. And uh, really, that was a function of its very strong long-term track record uh, and a strong 
following for Alexander Darwell's style of investment. But, you know, he, that hasn't changed. As mentioned, he's very growth focused and a very concentrated list of names as well. Yes, I think I'm right in saying that the discount on this one at the moment is the widest of all the trusts in uh, the European sector, but it remains one of the largest uh, trusts, I think, does it not? So uh, at some point, if he can convince people that he's got over this unfortunate incident with Wirecard, which was its largest shareholding, of course, there might become some value in that, do you think? Well, in terms of the size, it's got a market cap of about £900 million. So you're absolutely right. It's certainly one of the largest uh, investment trusts in the European subsector. And again, in terms of the discount, that 12% discount marks it at the wider end. I mean, the average discount on a European fund at the moment is probably about 6%. And we've got a couple trading on premium ratings or around NAV. So yes, is there an opportunity here for a re-rating? Should we can demonstrate that performance has turned round? There will obviously be those people who believe that that is the case. And I'm sure Alexander Darwell would be working very hard to turn this one round. Indeed. So let's move on and touch briefly on a trust called Gulf Investment Fund, ticker GIF. What have they had to say? So they announced their annual results for the year ended 30th of June. Um, their NAV was up 42.4% in the period, which sounds good, but actually just slightly behind their benchmark. So the benchmark was up 43.3%. Uh, the share price trumps both those numbers up 45.2% as the discount narrowed. So perhaps as the name would suggest, this is a very specialised investment trust, only 34 holdings, 21 of which are in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there's also significant weightings to Qatar and the United Arab Emirates. But again, I think we talked about this one towards the end of last year. There was a big liquidity event. 44% of shares were tendered in December last year. And in fact, they have another tender coming up very, very soon in the next few weeks. And that's basically up to 100%. But they've said that there has to be a minimum size of 38 million shares going forward. So they stand today at about 52 million shares. So effectively, the tender can be up to about 26, 27%. They also pay an enhanced dividend equivalent to 4% of their NAV as well. So we have seen this fund's discount tightening. It's probably about 2.5% or so at the moment. Does that give us any indication as to what might happen when the tender offer comes around? Do you have any kind of clues to go on as far as that's concerned? Well, if you're going to put a 100% tender offer on the table at around NAV, then you would expect naturally the discount to tighten in. That intuitively does make sense. Whether there will be a big uptake, I mean, remains to be seen. Clearly, the fact they offered a substantial liquidity opportunity in December last year, you'd assume that most people who wanted an exit would have departed at that stage. But clearly, they are minded to keep the fund at a size that kind of works. It's got a market cap of about 68 million at the moment. So they won't want that dropping any lower because then the costs of running the investment trust just really uh, become uneconomic. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Nippon Active Value Fund, ticker NAVF. They've also had some interim results. They are in the Japanese market. They are indeed. So interim results to the end of June, in which time their NAV total return was up 10.1%. That compared with a rise of 1.4% for the fund's reference index. Uh, Share price was even better, actually. The share price total return was up 17.5% as the discount narrowed. So it's a relatively young investment trust company. It only launched back in February 2020, which was a slightly unfortunate time to launch uh, with the benefit of hindsight, because obviously about a month or two later, the world appeared to end and uh, most people weren't really looking at the new launches. But they are starting to build a kind of track record. 95% of the fund's IPO pro Seats were invested at the 18th of August. It's a very concentrated portfolio. It's only 19 holdings. And it takes an activist approach to Japanese equities. So there's a bit of information in terms of what they're doing in that regard and the, the holdings that are working for them. But essentially, it's playing the improving corporate governance theme that you see in, in Japanese equities or Japanese markets, and probably not entirely dissimilar to the AVI Japan Opportunity Fund that we've also discussed. Okay, now we can talk about Pacific Horizon, ticker PHI, which have had some annual results out. And this is a trust that is now in the Bailey Gifford stable. How have they been performing? 
So they had annual results out for the year to the end of July and a strong set of results actually. The NAV was up 61.3%. That compared to a rise of 12.7% for the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Index. Uh, the share price total return nearly as impressive up 59%. So there was a change of manager during the year. So Roderick Snell took over in June. He succeeded Ewan Markson Brown, who managed the fund for a number of years, but had moved on from Bailey Gifford. But I think what kind of caught my eye on this one is that you saw outperformance in the first half of that year, um, when certainly growth companies, and unsurprisingly, it's, it's Bailey Gifford, they do have a growth bias, but um, markets suited growth companies. But they also outperformed in the second half of the year as well. So they were up in the second half, up 11%, and that compared with a drop of 6.5%. Now, that was a result of their decision to kind of shift away from China. Initially, they went into commodities and then actually India, uh, and they bought or they invested in more cyclical industries. So they actually timed this very, very well. Their weighting to India has increased from about 7% up to 29%. So it's their largest country, or certainly their largest overweight. And that includes a number of private companies. They've actually invested in four private companies in India. In common with a number of the Bailey Gifford funds, they can invest up to 10% at present in private companies, and they're looking to increase that to 15%. Also during this year, they reduced their weighting down in China from about 41% to 27%. So companies like Tencent and Mitong were sold and a position in Alibaba reduced. But as I said, it's, a, it's an impressive set of results. Yes, yeah, so particularly reducing that Chinese exposure looks very smart now. Of course, in view of what's been happening to the Chinese equity market, sold off pretty sharply, and that has affected the Bailey Gifford China Fund as well. Uh, just to be clear, though, on this one, it uh, invests in Asia, but it doesn't invest in Japan, right? So there's no overlap with the Bailey Gifford Japan Trust that we talked about earlier. That's correct. Okay, so let's move on. And now let's talk about CQS New City High Yield, ticker NCYF. They've had some annual results as well. They have indeed, and they announced annual results for the year ended 30th of June, in which time they had an NAV total return of 21.4% and a share price total return of 26.3%. So as the name would suggest, this investment trust invests in high-yielding fixed-interest securities. It's been managed by a chap called Ian Francis, though known everywhere across the market as Franco, a very experienced manager. And obviously the yield and the revenue and the dividend is a very important part of the story. So the actual revenue earnings per share were down in this year, year on year. So previous year came in at 4.59p and it was 4.18p in that financial year 2021. And that was a result of a few missed coupons and dividends. Uh, Mataman Finance and Rare Holdings were mentioned. But it also said, and there was some commentary around, it's also getting harder to find replacement bonds with attractive yields. They've also been hit by some early redemptions as well. Uh, but the board said that that was something they were looking to watch quite closely. But the dividend cover still came in at 0.94 times and total annual dividends were increased to 4.47p. So what kind of yield do you get on this high yield investment trust? So the yield at the moment on a historic basis is 8.2%. I mean, it sits in the bonds and loans subsector and the average yield in that subsector is about 5%. So you do get a bit of an uplift on that. That's a very impressive yield. And it's uh, also trading on a premium, is it? It's trading on a 5% premium at the moment. Wow. In a period of very, very low interest rates when uh, bond yields have been falling and corporate bond yields have been falling as well. That's a pretty remarkable combination, I would have thought. Testament to Franco. Obviously. Let's move on and talk about another trust, Schroeder UK Public Private, ticker SUPP, formerly known as Woodford Patient Capital. Schroeder's, which now manages this trust, just produced the first, uh, the half-year results to the 30th of June. That's right. And there's a few bits and pieces going on here, so I'll try and rattle through these. I mean, in terms of the performance in that period, the NAV was up 16.1%. So a few things in the portfolio work quite nicely for it, but that included the revaluation of Oxford Nanopore. That was increased 32%. It's the largest holding, or it was the largest holding at the end of June. It represented just short of 27% of the portfolio. And that uplift to the carrying value as a private company was based on a funding round back in May. However, there is an anticipated IPO, which if you um, follow the media, feels that it's relatively imminent 
and clearly uh, that has the potential to have a, a marked impact on the NAV. In general, though, unquoted holdings contributed about 19% or so to the NAV return in the period, uh, while quoted holdings detracted by about 1% or so. But the portfolio is still skewed to private companies or unquoted holdings, obviously Oxford Nanoport being largest amongst them. But there has been an awful lot of portfolio activity in this six-month period. Uh, and again, I think we've probably talked about this over recent months, but essentially uh, they've realised a proportion of the portfolio. This has allowed them to de-gear the investment trust. So it's actually now got um, some kind of net cash on the balance sheet. That wasn't the case going back six months or, or certainly 12 months. Um, and this has allowed the, the team at Schroders to actually make some new investments. So there were three new investments in the period. There were two private investments uh, and one public investment as well. It's also worth noting, actually, there's been a change to the management team here. Ben Wicks, who was the co-manager, is actually taking a step back. There's a chap called Roger Doig, who's going to replace him, uh, and Tim Creed, uh, who looks after the unquoted holdings. He continues as well. So this has been a turnaround as we know, after the uh, the drama surrounding Woodford patient capital. Uh, but it's still trading on quite a big discount. Well, discounts obviously come in a lot, and traders now, as you say, are in a position to actually uh, make some new investments, having got themselves out of the bind that they originally took on. What do you think about how the trust has been trading? And do you think people are still a little bit wary of this trust because of what happened in the past? Well, we've got it on about a 17% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average of about 20% in the previous 12 months. So you're right, it is still a significant discount. And we have it in a subsector called growth capital. So it sits alongside funds such as Chrysalis that we've talked about a lot, Shehalian, uh, and even something like the Seraphine Space. Now, it's doing something a bit different to all those uh, investment trusts. But it's notable that the aforementioned are all trading on premium ratings, and this is on a, a not insignificant discount. So I think the, the fate of Oxford Nanopore is very important in the short term to Shredder UK public-private. And I think the investment team at Shredder has said they will use that IPO, assuming it's successful, assuming it goes ahead, uh, as a bit of a liquidity event. So um, I think they're able potentially to take some money off the table there. And that gives them the ability. They, they talk about rebalancing the portfolio. You know, I think there's been an awful lot of work to do for that new investment team with this portfolio. Um, but they're now at the stage where they're able to build something that clearly they feel more comfortable with. Um, but it would be good for them to build on that performance record that they've, they're starting to establish. OK, so now we can move on to the infrastructure sector. And we're going to talk about Gresham House Energy Storage. That's great. We've already talked about Gore Street Energy Storage and how they've managed to raise some more money. But uh, tell us about Gresham House Energy Storage's half-year results. So interim results to the end of June, uh, the NAV was up about 7% or so in that period. In fact, NAV total return was up 10%. And just to remind people, this, as you mentioned, it invests in battery energy storage systems uh, across Great Britain. It was only launched back in November 2018 when it raised about £100 million. So it's kind of pushed on quite a bit since then. Dividends, obviously, an important part of the story. And in that six-month period, uh, they've paid or declared dividends of 3.5p, and they've reaffirmed their total dividend target for 2021 of 7p. Uh, the dividend cover came in at 1.38 times. But they're clearly ambitious in terms of what they can do with this investment company. They're targeting about 1.3 gigawatts of operational capacity uh, by the first half of 2023. OK, just compare them to uh, Gore Street. How do they look side by side? Which is the bigger, which has uh, got the better premium? Obviously, the Gore Street has been affected by its uh, current funding. But uh, just to put it in context for us, if you wouldn't mind, Simon. Yeah, that's right. So Gresham House Energy Storage is the larger of the two funds. It's got a market cap of about £540 million. Gore Street Energy uh, is coming in about £300 million. Though obviously, if its uh, latest fundraising activities are successful, that will change. In terms of the rating... The Gresham House Fund is trading on a premium of about 18% or so at the moment. Uh, Gore Street probably near at about 10%. And fundraising will have an impact on that. But if you look over the previous 12 months, Gresham House has had the slightly higher rating of the two. And now let's mention US Solar Fund, also in the renewable energy sector, a different kind of renewable energy trust, uh, ticker USF. They've had some half-year results to the 30th of June. 
Yep, and in which time their NAV declined just short of 3%, and that was a result of lower US merchant electricity price forecasts, which effectively reflected some COVID uncertainty when those forecasts were released during last year and the early part of this year. Although since then, those um, merchant price forecasts have trended upwards, uh, and they're clearly hopeful that that is a pattern that continues. In terms of the actual generation, well, it came in about 0.9% of budget, so it was there or thereabouts. Dividends amounted to 2.5 cents, and the fund remains on track to deliver the 2021 annual dividend target of 5.5 cents, which is expected to be covered. Um, in terms of the equity issue that they, they raised some money back in May, well, about 92 million of the 132 million has been used to pay down or refinance debt facilities. Uh, and in addition to that, they've got quite a strong pipeline. In fact, I think they mentioned a $2 billion pipeline, uh, which sounds quite large to me. There's a lot in the newspapers about uh, rising gas prices in Europe, that is at least, and obviously it's affecting the UK amongst that. But these renewable energy trusts, it's not quite as simple as saying that when uh, energy prices go up, that they also necessarily do well. They all obviously are very popular, these renewable energy trusts. Uh, but one of the factors contributing to uh, the current gas price surge is the fact that, as we've talked about before, the climate has not been... Uh, uh, quite as it normally is this year. So there's been quite a reduction in one or two uh, wind generation, for example, into the grid. Is is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, when you look at these uh, renewable energy infrastructure plays, be it wind or solar, whatever it might be, clearly they do project out what they would expect. And invariably, it's built on, on data that's been collected over a, a large number of years. Not always, but mostly that is the case. Now, clearly, there can be variation in any one year. And, and as you probably observe, it's been bizarrely less windy in the UK, for instance, this year than in previous years. But that does have an impact. But it's worth noting that subsidies do form, particularly for those UK renewable energy infrastructure players, quite a large element of the revenue. In addition to that, they do sell quite a lot of the energy forward. So it, these are not pure play on the energy prices, though. Um, as these portfolios are built up and mature, energy prices become more of a swing factor in terms of their performance. Yes, and you have to obviously differentiate between the short term and the long term. It's not uncommon to see higher prices in the short term being matched by uh, slightly lower price expectations in the longer term. Not surprisingly, it's supply and demand at work. Okay, we've got time for a couple of property trusts. And we're going to start off with Phoenix Spray Deutschland. Uh, PSDL is the ticker. And this is a trust that, as its name suggests, invests in German property. And it's had quite a interesting couple of years, quite a roller coaster couple of years. Um, how have they performed in the half year to 30th of June? So their uh, EPRA total returns, so that's equivalent to their NAV, was up about 3.6% and their interim dividend was unchanged at two spot 3.5 cents. But yeah, really the, the kind of the big story here was about the positive ruling on the on the rent cap that impacted uh, rental property in Berlin. I think we talked about that when that was announced uh, earlier this year. So that's clearly been the big following wind for this particular company. I mean, in terms of rent collection, in 97% or even higher than that, actually, of rents uh, were collected during that first half. Uh, and that's been a consistent pattern into the second half. And there's some discussion about long-term Berlin demographic trends expected to remain positive. Uh, and the manager seems pretty bullish as well. They might be following that uh, rent collection ruling. Okay, well, those shares have recovered nicely and they're now trading at or around all-time high, having recovered somewhat, at least recovered some of the discount they moved to last year when this uh, whole rent issue was live. Let's move on finally and talk about supermarket income REIT. They've produced their annual report for the year to the 30th of June. Obviously, supermarkets much in the news at the moment because of the bid for Morrison's and speculation about some of the other supermarkets as well. Uh, but what's the REIT been doing and how have they been uh, performing? Well, it was a solid set of results, to be honest, for the, for the reasons I think you've just outlined. I mean, the total shareholder return was up about 11% or so. Earnings per share came in at 12.6p. That was up 29%. And the dividend per share came in at 5.9p. So that was increased from 5p. So uh, EPRA dividend cover of one spot 04 
times. And they've increased the dividend target for next year, so their financial year 2022, that's been increased by 1.4% to 5.94p. So all pretty positive on the dividend front. Uh, the loan to value ratio, which is effectively looking at the amount of debt on the balance sheet, that was that came in about 34%. Uh, with a weighted current cost of debt of just 1.9 times. So in other words, they're borrowing at a relatively low level. And these shares are, are pretty popular, are they not, compared to many of the other trusts that operate in the commercial property sector? They trade on a premium. And uh, what kind of uh, yield did you get off this uh, particular trust? And what is the premium? Yeah, I got the premium rating about uh, 16 17%. So you're absolutely right. It is a, it's a decent premium. And in fact, over the last 12 months, it's averaged about 9% or so. So again, for the reasons you mentioned, uh, supermarkets have been seen as quite different to their commercial UK commercial property counterparts. In terms of the yield, it's coming in on a historic base of about 4.9% or so at the moment. Okay, so that is all we have time for this week. It'd be another interesting week. They all, well, all the weeks are interesting on the whole. I just briefly mentioned that uh, in the uh, Moneymakers Circle this week, we have two things that might be of interest. One is an interview with uh, the manager of an open-ended fund, one of the few open-ended funds I actually own, which is the Evanload Equity Income Fund, managed by a gentleman called Hugh Yarrow, who operates out of a, a nice set of farmhouse buildings not far from where I live in Oxford. A very interesting trust, very consistent track record. And we've also done a fund profile of Addition Investment Trust. This is a trust that's just celebrated its third anniversary as a listed company. So we'll look forward to what happens next week. Lots of news, I'm sure. Some more fundraising news to come out. And uh, Simon, so how would you characterize the market moment? We're coming to the end of September. Some people think there's sometimes quite a little choppy period in September, October. Uh, what do you think about where we are in the in the market cycle, just to finish off? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, as we, I think we talked about before, October historically has been a time where we have seen some quite marked moves in the market. And certainly, I think there is quite a degree of nervousness out there talking to uh, investment managers that really have different opinions. Some have been happy to reduce their gearing levels, uh, just hunker down a little bit. It has been a good year so far in absolute terms, uh, and they don't feel they need to chase the market where others are looking at the strong earnings numbers that are coming through, a very a positive set of earnings revisions in, in many, many sectors uh, and are happy to, to play that. So different opinions out there, but then essentially that's what makes markets. Indeed it is. Supply and demand. Thank you, Simon, for your comments this week and we'll look forward to speaking again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.